Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, January 3rd, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, Biden's Q4 numbers are out, Warren's Q4 numbers are out, Klobuchar's Q4 numbers are out, Williamson lays off her campaign staff but does not drop out, Bloomberg is officially skipping Nevada, Iowa announces 99 satellite caucuses, the impeachment update, and more about that January DNC debate. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Yesterday, a fifth Democrat released his fundraising numbers for Q4, that is the total amount of money he raised in the last three months of the year. That is former Vice President Joe Biden, and it is, drum roll please, oh, we, we, don't have a, we don't have a drum roll sound effect, okay, it's about $23 million. Alright, money stuff is always hard to talk about on a podcast, same with percentages and other numbers like that. How do we take this number and make sense of it? Well, one way to look at it is that it's his best quarter yet. He entered the race in April of 2019, so he only had a partial Q2, then a full Q3, and this was a full Q4. And this number, the Q4 number, beats both of his previous quarters. But by how much? Well, that's where it gets tricky. When Biden first entered the race, it was the very end of April. That cut off almost an entire month of fundraising for him. So when he reported that first quarter's results, he had a nice number at $22 million. And, by the way, it is normal for a well-known candidate to get a nice head start to the race in that first quarter. That's when all the people who know you, and like you, open their wallets. Okay, so then the next quarter, even though he had more time, he brought in about 30% less money. And this past quarter, he was just a touch above that first one. So, good quarter kind of bad quarter, then best quarter so far. The thing that makes this so messy for Biden specifically is comparing him to everybody else. For instance, back in Q2, when Biden entered the race, Buttigieg brought in more money than Biden. As a mayor from Indiana, not the former vice president and longtime senator and so on, that was a big shock at the time. And right now, we know that Senator Bernie Sanders is running way ahead of Biden in terms of fundraising. Sanders is more than 45% ahead of Biden for that fourth quarter. There are many ways to interpret these numbers, and I think the best analysis I've seen comes in a single tweet from NBC News reporter Alex Seitz-Wald. Yesterday he wrote, quote, How to read Q4 fundraising numbers for frontrunner Joe Biden. Option 1. Another sign of weakness. His $22.7 million haul puts him in third, behind Bernie's $34.5 million and Pete's $24.7 million. Option 2. Another sign of durability. Up from Q3, polls show he's outperforming with voters versus money. End quote. And there you have it. The frontrunner in the polls by a pretty good margin nationally is either weak or strong, depending on how you look at it. Next up, more money talk. Senator Elizabeth Warren has released her Q4 2019 fundraising number, and unlike every other major candidate we have seen so far, it is actually down a little bit from Q3. Warren brought in over $21 million in Q4, which is about a 15% drop from her previous quarter. It is also below what Sanders, Buttigieg, and Biden brought in, though her number is very close to Biden's. It puts her in fourth place for the quarter. 
Reading from a story by Alex Thompson in Politico, quote, Realizing that her fundraising numbers were likely to underwhelm, the Warren campaign sought to lower expectations in advance. In a number of emails to supporters over the past week, the campaign admitted that it was behind its past fundraising pace and set a goal of raising $20 million, below its last quarter figure. The campaign then tried to spin the $21.2 million as a victory. I'm excited to share some great news with you, campaign manager Roger Lau wrote in an email to supporters. Thanks to supporters like you who stepped up and chipped in, we beat our goal. End quote. So again, we have this problem of trying to figure out what the money means. Of course, more money is better for lots of reasons. From a narrative perspective, the storytelling perspective, getting more money than everybody else, or more money than you did the previous quarter, is good. People like that. They get it. From a practical perspective, if you have tens of millions of dollars coming in every quarter, you're in good shape to buy TV ads and run a solid ground operation in those early voting states that matter most. And then there's the relative perspective, how you fit in with the other candidates in the same time period. It's great to beat them, but we already know that polling doesn't always line up with money. Biden is a case study there, having never hit the number one fundraising spot, but almost always held that place in national polling. So given all that, I think the best way to look at Warren's number is that she's clearly in that top tier, both in polls and fundraising, but she faces real competition on both fronts. And one last bit of fundraising news for today. Senator Amy Klobuchar announced her Q4 numbers. She brought in $11.4 million. That puts her in sixth place in the field for that quarter, but it's a major jump for her campaign. That Q4 number is more than double what she brought in during Q3, and it is by far her best fundraising quarter yet. Reading from a story by Elena Schneider in Politico, quote, The Minnesota Democrat posted strong debate performances throughout the fall, which helped boost her fundraising as well as her performance in polls. The fourth quarter haul gives her the financial heft to try to turn that into a strong showing in neighboring Iowa, the first caucus state and the key to Klobuchar's campaign strategy. End quote. Okay, so good quarter for Klobuchar and it might translate into success in Iowa. There's one last bit on this fundraising talk that I want to mention. And that's a tweet by Politico reporter Zach Montalero, which puts things into another kind of perspective by comparing all this fundraising with another candidate who is himself not fundraising, but spending from his vast personal fortune. Montalero wrote this yesterday morning, quote, an easy way to contextualize just how much Mike Bloomberg is spending in the primary. Bernie Sanders raised an absolutely bonkers $34.5 million in the fourth quarter. But Bloomberg is spending more than that on TV ads alone, $36 million per advertising analytics, from January 1st through 8th. End quote. Yeah, so to say that one more time, one candidate will spend more money on TV ads in one week than the top candidate has raised in three months. We just don't know how Bloomberg's spending will affect this race, and that is something to keep watching. (sighs) 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, this next story is a little unusual. Yesterday, after I recorded the show, news broke that author Marianne Williamson has laid off her campaign staff. All of them. This news apparently came first from Paul Hodes, who was Williamson's New Hampshire state campaign director, until yesterday. So the obvious reaction there is, well, Williamson must be dropping out. After all, over the holiday break, she sent an email to supporters saying she needed cash immediately in order to stay in the race. But Williamson is in fact not dropping out. She just doesn't have a paid staff anymore. In a statement late yesterday, Williamson wrote in part, quote, As of today, we cannot afford a traditional campaign staff. I am not suspending my candidacy, however. A campaign not having a huge war chest should not be what determines its fate, end quote. She went on to suggest that she may be able to use volunteers to serve some of the functions of a traditional campaign staff. All of this raises an interesting question. Can you run for president in a Democratic primary without a campaign staff? And the answer, as far as I can tell, is yes. Now, without any staff, it's going to be virtually impossible to get on the primary ballots in all the upcoming states. We've talked about this before. In general, you need to get signatures and fill out paperwork in every single state where you want to be on the ballot. So a single person trying to do that probably cannot get it done. Williamson would have to literally walk around collecting signatures in each state and filing papers. There's just not enough calendar time for a one-person operation to make that feasible. But having said that, the work Williamson's campaign has already done to get her on various ballots can still keep her in the race for a while without any real problems. So technically, yes, Williamson can run a campaign without any staff. It is likely that she will drop out at some point. But then again, it is guaranteed that 13 out of the 14 remaining candidates will do so as well. The question is just when. And Williamson is clearly willing to wait this one out just a while longer. Here is a super quick item. Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg did not file to be part of the Nevada caucus. Now, this lines up with his unconventional strategy of skipping the four early voting states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. He is relying on larger, later voting states like California. So if you are in Nevada and you were hoping to caucus for Bloomberg, he will not be an option. But for the record, Williamson is registered, as are all the other major candidates, so caucus accordingly. 
Next up, the Iowa Democratic Party announced the locations for its 99 satellite caucuses. We covered the first part of this several months ago. The gist of it is, the Iowa caucuses traditionally take place physically, in person, in Iowa. However, that means you have to physically attend one of these events in order for your vote to count. And that's really tough if you're, oh, say, working on a Tuesday night, or you're a student out of state, or you're working overseas, or you have a disability, or whatever. So the DNC asked Iowa to come up with a plan to improve access to their caucuses. Iowa originally submitted a plan to allow people to phone in and select their preferred candidates in a ranked-choice vote. But the DNC rejected that plan over concerns that phone systems could be hacked. Okay, so Iowa's compromise was to create 99 additional caucus locations, that's beyond whatever they had before, in an attempt to cover more people who would like to caucus, but can't get to a traditional location. However, all of these locations are still physical. You have to get there at a certain time. The list of new locations is a lot to take in. It is a Google document, and just skimming through, let me offer some interesting locations they chose. We've got four locations each in Arizona and Florida. There's one in Paris, France, several in Chicago, two in New York, one in Scotland, one in the Republic of Georgia, that's the country, not the state, and of course, various other U.S. states. It also includes a bunch of additional locations in Iowa. So, in addition to the ability for Iowans who happen to be in Paris during the caucus, the main effect is to add more locations within Iowa. The bulk of Iowa voters are there, though there is a substantial group of voters, I'm looking at you college students, who are all over the country. So, reading from the Iowa Democratic Party website, quote, Iowa Democrats will have the option to caucus at locations like accessibility and assisted living centers, language and community gathering places, work centers, and union halls. Notably, there are 19 working-related sites, 21 sites on college campuses, 38 sites that accommodate accessibility needs, including aging service centers, 12 sites that are accommodating language and culture needs, and nine sites for those Iowans who spend their winters in other parts of the country, end quote. And yes, by that last part, I think they mean Florida and Arizona. And now the impeachment news in about 90 seconds. A bunch of newly unredacted emails were released this week. Just in case that word unredacted clangs in your ears as much as mine, that means they restored the parts that were formerly covered up. Okay, so what are these emails and what do they tell us now that those hidden parts have been revealed? Well, there are a series of communications about the Ukraine affair, and they say that President Trump personally gave, quote, clear direction, end quote, to withhold military aid from Ukraine. Now, we pretty much knew that because of witness testimony, but now we have the documents that demonstrate it from back in August. And it goes a little further. In these emails, Pentagon officials and folks at the Office of Management and Budget discuss whether that freeze was legal, given the fact that Congress appropriated the money. Generally, when Congress says to spend money, it must be spent. That is one of its core functions granted by the Constitution. House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff weighed in on these emails, writing, quote, As part of our impeachment inquiry, the House subpoenaed these very documents. From their deeply incriminating character, we can now see why they were concealed. 
they directly corroborate witnesses who testified that military aid to Ukraine was withheld at the direction of the president and that the White House was informed doing so may violate the law. The administration did not want Congress to find out why. End quote. All of this goes back again to the nature of the Senate trial. Democrats are insisting that the officials involved of all of this, many of whom have already been subpoenaed, should actually testify. But as of this moment, I have no news on whether that will happen. Last up today, let's talk about the January DNC debate. A lot of this info came out right after we closed up shop for the holidays, so I wanted to make sure you've heard the basics. The debate will be on Tuesday, January 14th, and the media partners are CNN and the Des Moines Register. It'll take place at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, ahead of their First in the Nation caucus. And, as usual, the DNC has increased the thresholds candidates must meet in order to reach the debate stage. That is where we are seeing some real trouble. The new requirements say that candidates need at least 225,000 unique donors nationwide. In addition to that, each candidate must get at least 5% support in four DNC-sanctioned national polls, or 7% support in two early voting state polls. Now, I talked about this polling stuff yesterday, but I left out an important bit of context. We have been in a drought of polls, especially in early voting states. Those are Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. In all of December, there were a grand total of four polls released that covered those states, and zero of them were by DNC-sanctioned polling organizations. That means, regardless of what those polls found, no candidate can use them to qualify for the debate. But in the past, there have been way more polls of those states in the same time period. In the last Democratic primary cycle, we had 14 polls of those states in December versus four now. So this lack of polling data in general is one problem. And the other problem is which polls the DNC chooses to accept in its debate qualifying criteria. Now, the pollsters don't run the polls in order to qualify people for debates. That is not their job nor their intent. But the DNC decided to use that data as a qualification metric. So when there isn't any data, well, we've got a problem. The net effect is that for candidates who had strong national polling prior to the December debate, they have already qualified for the January debate based on that old polling. But given that the most recent qualifying poll we have was released before the December debate, there is literally no way for any candidate to meet the DNC's new thresholds if they hadn't already done so prior to the previous debate. This is the context for why Yang sent a letter to the DNC asking them to commission more polls, which they declined to do. Similarly, Booker and others sent a letter asking for more diversity on the stage and, again, got a big nope. Okay, so that is the key controversy around that January debate. At the moment, the qualified list is Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Sanders, and Warren. There are lots of candidates who could be helped by more polling, especially in those early states. From my read of the data, candidates like Booker, Gabbard, Steyer, and Yang have a clear shot at qualifying if we get more polls. And we now have just seven days to go until the DNC's polling deadline closes. Alright, so prediction time. Next week, I am confident that we will see some polls. 
Whether they are enough to qualify any new candidates for that debate stage, I do not know. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, it is good to be back, though I am still working through a large pile of stories that I accumulated over the break. I'll keep working through them next week as we get caught up on this race and all the efforts around the country to register voters and remove voters and so on. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday.